Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, folks and music nerds. Welcome back. This is episode number 140 and the final episode of season six. My guest today is the mighty Jerry Douglas, and I'm very excited to bring you that conversation. I'm jumping in here right at the beginning instead of the regular show intro because we have some stuff to take care of, and I thought we'd get right into the action. First of all, I just wanted to thank everyone so much for tuning in this whole season. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you've been with me for a few years now, thanks for sticking around. It's been a great season. I've had a blast putting it all together. I've had some great conversations and learned a ton about all kinds of crazy stuff. If you're new to the show, make sure you peruse some of the back episodes and get a load of the previous show's guests. There's lots of good stuff back there. So first of all, I wanted to mention that season seven is coming. I've started on it. I've already had a few people over to the hen house to do some yakking. I've got a few under my belt. So I don't have a firm schedule yet, but I'm kind of thinking that I'll start dropping the new episodes in May of this year. So a couple months from now, the plan would be for them to run through the end of 2023 and maybe wrap up around then completely that next season. I don't know. We'll see. That's the loose plan anyway. So probably a couple months of uh, no episodes and then in May we'll start up again. I will keep you posted. So there's a few ways this show stays on its feet, and that's basically through sponsors and you guys, the listeners. Costs keep going up to host a website, host the podcast, maintain all that stuff, do the editing, booking, and finalizing of each episode. It always seems to stay afloat somehow, and I'd like to thank you all for kicking in wherever you've done that. It's greatly appreciated. The sponsors have been amazing this year. I'd like to thank them one more time. So they are Ear Trumpet Labs microphones, which I'm talking into right now, funnily enough. Uh, Spectra 1964 that makes killer uh, recording equipment. Black Mountain Thumb Picks, which I use all the time. Union Tube and Transistor Pedals, which has been with me since day one. And Isotope, who make all kinds of groovy, amazing plugins, which I also use. I try to keep the sponsors relevant to music and to stuff that I actually use, and so far that's worked out well. All those companies make amazing stuff, and you should check them out and support them. That leaves the listeners, and you guys have been great this year with both one-time donations and Patreon subscriptions. Those are super helpful, even between seasons, as all my hard costs continue, even when the shows aren't coming out regularly. So keep them going if you're a fan of the show, and it'll help kick things in for Season 7. While you're at it, if you don't mind, please leave a rating or a review and or a review over at Apple Podcasts. That really helps the cause, too. I still don't think you can do that on Spotify, but if you can, then please do it there. I, I know they're going to start, but I don't know if they've actually started doing that yet or not. I had some new backers this week, and I'd like to thank them now. These are actually from the last few weeks. I got a bit behind on on thanking people on the show. Uh, anyway, here they are. James Patsula. Patsula? Patsula? hope I got that right. Rowan Palmer. Alan G. Moses. Chris Weber. Jim McKendrick. Thank you all so much. 
Now, as I mentioned before on previous episodes, Union Tube and Transistor, one of our sponsors, has donated a really cool reverb pedal to be given away, and I promised to do that on the last show of the season, and that's right now. So here it is. The groovy prize is a Union C-verb pedal. It's a really cool reverb pedal that has a sort of a trippy ambient reverb side. There's like a normal reverb side and then a trippy ambient reverb side. It's really good. So all you had to do to be eligible was to sign up on Patreon. So if you did that, you are entered. And with that, the winner of the Union C-verb pedal is George Wells. So... George Wells, hit me up through the website or Patreon, or I'll just reach out to you. And I've got this pedal here, and I'll send it out to you ASAP. One other bit of news from here is that the Hen House Hang that I've been talking about, we've decided to change things slightly. It's still going to be a multi-day recording workshop here in Nashville at my place, the Hen House. But we're getting a number of inquiries from people who wanted to get their own place or had a friend they could stay with or were from Nashville. And that just wasn't an option. So what we've done is we've taken the accommodations out of the equation and made the whole thing way cheaper. And it leaves you to find your own accommodations. But there's tons of great deals around. And so now it's much more affordable. So if you want to come to Nashville, hang out, and take part in this multi-day session and learn a bunch of cool stuff about recording and mixing with me and some friends, it's September 25 through 27, and there's still a couple spots left. All the info for that is at stevedawson.ca. I'm also going out on tour in April and May with my band, just doing a few shows in Western Canada this time. I've got a brand new album out called Eyes Closed Dreaming that you can order now if you're interested. And we're going to be playing music from the three records I put out over the last year. So if you're in Western or Central Canada, please come see us. The dates are all on my website now and tickets are available too there at stevedawson.ca. Okay, I think that's about it. Let's get down to the final episode. Jerry Douglas. He's a total legend and probably needs very little introduction here. But I will say that there's a select few musicians on the planet who have undeniably redefined their instrument. So much so that you can't really play that instrument without being influenced by them or you draw comparisons to that person, whether you like it or not. Jaco Pastorius comes to mind on the fretless bass, or Jimi Hendrix, or Jeff Beck on the electric guitar. Maybe uh, Mississippi John Hurt or Chet Atkins come to mind as well. And then, of course, on the dobro, Jerry Douglas. He's had an incredibly prolific career, starting in the mid-70s with The Country Gentleman and J.D. Crow through the groundbreaking group Boone Creek with Ricky Skaggs and some incredible work with Buck White. That's sort of the early period of Jerry's career before he becomes a session kingpin. And I'm not even going to begin to list his credit highlights because we'd be here all day. But you can look them up if you want. But you may know already. The number of records he's played on is somewhere seemingly around 1,600, which is insane. He's been nominated for 32 Grammys, won 14 of them, and is a 10-time IBMA winner of Dobro Player of the Year. His production credits are amazing too, and that really came to the fore with his work with Alison Krauss in Union Station. Not to mention his recent work with John Hyatt, they made a really cool record together last year, and Molly Tuttle, whose record that just won a Grammy he produced, or co-produced with Molly, I think. Jerry's really active with his own incredible band and continues to produce and tour seemingly nonstop. He's been involved in a ton of Dobro innovations as well, which are really interesting and cool. We're going to get into all that stuff and more. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jerry Douglas. You just got back from somewhere. Yeah, I've been over. I've been in the UK for a couple of three months. Three months? I just got back. Oh my God, how was that? 
good, mostly good. <laughs> mostly good. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. I've, I've been hoping to get you on this show for a while. And I've had lots of people that have in that are in your world, but never had a chance to have you on here before. One of the issues that I have when I when I bring someone like you on is like it, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, your career's been massive; it's been going for a long time. And also, like somebody like you, that's kind of redefined the instrument. It's bananas to think of like where it was when you first started and where it's come now. And yeah. so, I guess a, a good place to start is like when you were when you were a youngster and and starting out obviously you know you had some traditional bluegrass dobro influences that maybe we could talk about but were you also aware of the limitations of the instrument and and aware of as yourself trying to push the boundaries of what it could do or did you just want to play some bluegrass with your pals like what was your what was your mindset when you were a kid yeah i i had no i had no ideas about limitations or otherwise you know for the about the instrument i just you know i was just trying to learn how to play it within the confines of bluegrass music at that point when i started playing and there was no one around where i lived that you know that knew what bluegrass music was let alone a dobro or you know how to tune it or anything like that so everything was like from you know from grassroots my dad had a bluegrass band, so he had a banjo player, and we figured, well, the first four strings I'll have to be doing like this. And then then I guess we'll just go an octave down from there, like a steel or something. So uh, I think... So you just literally took a guess at how it was supposed to be I really set up? did, man. Just like, there was no, there was nothing like we have now, you know? There was yeah. no internet. There was nothing like that, and all we, there were records. There were records and there were live shows that you could go to. And if you could get close enough, you could see how somebody was playing it and, and try to figure it out. But I, I, the guys in my dad's band were really great to let, uh, you know, a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid in. To, and they were good. They were really good. Yeah. They, they were just all mill workers. So they had already, you know, sort of cut out their lot in life and had <laughs> – kids and couldn't run off from the families and go right. hit roads. So they stayed where they were, but they were good musicians. Right, you got the dogs just like I do. And, yeah. That's Ringo. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, but I didn't, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have anybody. You I mean, I had these guys that would kind of like go, that sounds right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that like you grew up in Ohio. I, I don't know what part exactly, but but it's interesting to me that you ended up with the Dobro. Like what what drew you to it? If there was nobody like saying, "Hey man, check this out. This is cool. Like take this and tune it this way." If you had none of that, what what drew you to it in the first place? Well, it was all it was all Josh Graves' fault, in, you know, okay. and uh, and Earl Scruggs. You know, the, those yeah. those two were my musicians, go to mu musicians, and. You know, Earl Scruggs first. I, I remember first being a, a huge banjo fan, you know, or whatever, whatever a little kid is to, uh, you know, I like that. Yeah. You know, I like that one. And, and, uh, but then Josh Graves, I just remember when, when he played, uh, uh, Randy Lynn Rag, you know, there were so many sounds that came out of that guitar 
during his solo that I it still baffles me how he did really? how how you do all of that. I mean, I can do it now, but but it's just amazing. It's a great instrument. I mean, there are a lot of lot of things you can do with it, and he did kind of all of them in one solo. You know, <laughs> that's interesting that you point out that one particular one. So that was the one for you that you were just like, holy crap, this is yeah, insane. it was just like slash and burn his way through there. You know, there was yeah, no, take no prisoner, this guy, and he just yeah, he just bulldozed his way through this solo. It's incredible, you know, what he did. I mean, even now, for somebody to come up with a solo that that was that well constructed. It had all the elements of how you play this this funny looking guitar, right? All of them in it, you know, is is amazing to me. So, were you able to pick it out on your like? Were you able to figure any of that out on your dobro, or did you did you ever get a chance to see him play or anything? I did see him play. I, I saw him play. I saw Flatten Strokes play twice, um, sixty three and sixty six, something like that. I mean, in the well, so they were like really in their good. In their prime. Oh yeah, they were cranking, and uh, yeah, there was, and they 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 seemed they seemed so uh, self assured, you know. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. There was there didn't there was no work involved in what they were doing. They were they were just they were like actors on a stage. Wow. They were just they were they were going through the same motions. They were going to go through the same the next night, and just trying to shine it up. I mean, I've come to realize that after playing so many years and so many gigs and, and that, that, you know, you might, you might play the same song the next night, but you're going to try to do something to it to make it better than it was the night before, you know, yeah. even if it's subconsciously, you're, you're going to, you're trying to improve. You're trying to make something a little better. One, you know, one little edge of a slide or a string, you know, mm-hmm. a note here or there that that for me, I remember the things that happened the night before that I did that I want to change and and or that I want to smooth out or finesse. And I, I think that's what they were doing. I mean, and, and some nights they would just take a chance and, and go off the reservation, you know, totally. Mm-hmm. And and we did that. We did that in in uh, Union Station as well, because we were playing. Absolutely. We were playing big shows and we were playing mostly the same show every night. So every night was, you know, ex- you played, it sounded a lot better than a record eventually because we had all the chances to flush out the, all the little, the little tiny parts, you know, the little, the little hidden parts. And uh, so we just shined those things every night and they got a little bit better. But on a, on, I remember on Tuesday nights, I kind of plotted out Tuesday nights as my night that I would just not not do that. Not really. Not I'd play the intro to the song so we knew what song it was and everything. So the audience kind of knew what was going on. Clue them. And he just went for and it and then go. Yeah, every all bets. on a Tuesday night. On all, all bets are off. That was my night. So, my night to go. So if you saw Union Station on a Tuesday night, you were in for some Jerry Douglas mayhem. Yeah, at least me. That's and then, <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Dan, Dan in on it too. Dan and Ron were in on it too. Very wow. do what he had to do, but but the rest of us were like, I'm not taking the same solo I usually take. You know, just because- what about Allison? Was she in on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, she had too much on her plate. She had she had to be yeah. she had to be the angel voice, you know, that right. around it. So she had to, she had somebody had to stay. Somebody had to stay upright. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. I love that you did that on Tuesdays. Tuesdays. The, yeah. That in my mind. Tuesdays are the nights, you know, it's like a Tuesday night slot, not, you know, a prime concert night. Uh, if you fell on your face, you know, fewer people saw that, but uh, we didn't fall on our face much. And, and so what does, what does a guy like you do to like really push yourself? Like, where does that take you? Like, are you talking like harmonically or like right hand or what kind of stuff were you messing with that you wouldn't normally go near on a Wednesday night? <laughs> well, Wednesday night was easier than Tuesday night. When, uh, <laughs> but uh, I would probably start the solo in a different position, you know, yeah. maybe same note, but in a different position on a different string that would lead me to some other, into some other direction. But, but, I love melody, you know, so I'll always come back to the melody at some point and, and, you know, um, re-interject that back in there. So we, so we all know where we are. (laughs) Otherwise it was like, don't listen to me. Okay. Don't, don't listen to what I'm playing. Just play your part. Go listen to me because I'm going to do something. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. That's so cool. And then did you find that for the rest of the week that, that you would be influenced by like weird things that you might have done on the, on the Tuesday free for all? Yeah. Wednesday and Thursday were still things going through my head that hadn't cleared out on Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool, man. I've never heard of anyone doing that. That's really cool. You have to, when you do, when you do that many shows, uh, you have to let yourself go at some point, you know, you, you can't just do it all to entertain the audience. You, you have to entertain yourself or, or they're not going to be entertained, you know? Right. And, and we were up there having, having a blast, you know, playing this music that we loved and, and that translates to the audience. You know, but then, yeah, then here comes Tuesday night and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, all of a sudden there are there's a you're on a sled instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did Allison ever clue in to that? Did she ever go, "Hey guys, that was pretty out there tonight"? <laughs> uh, well, we never talked about it. <laughs> okay. We never talked about it. It was just sort of an un, unspoken thing. That, yeah. That I love it. We did, and 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 one somebody would start it, and then just like it's on, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that really was like the just like such a high caliber band, like every every single person in that band was like the greatest player of their instrument. It was really quite something. I never got a chance to see Union Station, but judging from the records, like it was quite the thing. Ron would Ron would, you know, for instance, Ron would kick off the lucky one or something like that. He would kick it off like he always did. But his solo might start with the same note, but then it wasn't, it was going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was fun. Everybody was on into it. I know Allison knew what was going on. She's got, <laughs> got bat, she's got bat ears. So she <laughs> knew what we were doing, but, but you know, it was still, it's still within spec, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So one of the interesting things I think about your playing is like the really lyrical quality where you're playing like really legato stuff that that is a big contrast to the faster open string kind of stuff that's more like banjo oriented that you do. 
And I'm just wondering, like, where where did that stuff come from? Because I don't hear a ton of that with the early generation of dobro players. Like, I, I hear more of the banjo-oriented kind of stuff and and a lot of, you know, roles and things like that. But a lot of the lead stuff, like, were you influenced by people other than the standard dobro oh, yeah. guys? Well, I got, you know, I had Tony Rice to bounce off of a lot. You know, who would... Yeah. Who would... Who introduced me more to to the jazz genre, you know, and I mean, cause when I would, was he playing stuff for you that you hadn't been exposed yeah, to? He was just, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'd go out to record with Tony and we would stay up all night and listen to Miles Davis and Eric Dolphy and all these major heavy jazz cats, you know, and then you would kind of go, go away from that with this whole different slant on what's possible, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, with with Tony and you know listening to Django Reinhardt, listening to Earl, uh, you know uh, uh, George Benson, you know there are just all these guitar players, Clapton, and because I had no dobro players to go to, to to get ideas from, really, I got my ideas from saxophone players, and from from uh, uh, from electric guitar players, and you know other genres of music, uh, which maybe didn't translate directly into what exactly what they were doing, but I may mm-hmm. fit into what we were doing. Yeah. Right. You know, phrasing techniques and things like that, you know, just to kind of like give the, you know, instead of bam, 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 you know, it's like bam, 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 you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, give it a breath somewhere and let it give it, uh, you know, and sort it, it was sort of like, yeah, take a look this way, take a look this way, which is the best direction to go. You know, it's like, yeah, it's visual in it as yeah. well. So, it, it, yeah, it's, it, music's a, music is a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it, it's a, it's such a release in, in it. And you can see, really see inside of someone, uh, and know more about their personality if you, if you hear them play an instrument more than you can if you talk to them, you know, mm-hmm. conversation. You know, you, you you kind of get where they're coming from, what, what uh, uh, attitude they're playing with, you know, so you know where uh, if, if they're coming from, you know, like I said, like a Josh, Josh Graves was just like slash and burn, but sometimes I've heard him play like the most beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just had to do had to do with the song substance and listen him listening to what was going on around him. I do this. I do the same thing. I I I do. I'm just. Uh, I want. I need that. I need something to bounce off of. But yeah, I say that right after I just did you know forty solo gigs. So no one to bounce off of. So you're just sort of like okay, which. <clears throat> You're kind of yeah. free to go to improvise anytime. And right. you just want to drag the crowd along with you. You don't want to leave them behind. I, I, yeah, of course. I, I hate to do that. I hate, I hate thinking that I just left somebody behind and they don't know where I am or they don't know what I'm doing, you know, they don't know what song it is anymore. You know, so sometimes I'll have, I'll leave a breadcrumb here and there. <laughs> yeah. With, <clears throat> with Tony, I feel like, he probably sat down and like, I can hear, you know, like Coltrane licks here and there or Miles licks or things like that. You can tell that he probably sat down and like figured some of that shit out. Did you ever get to the point where you were working out? I don't hear it necessarily 
literally like that in your playing. No, it's, I mean, he he worked more from scales than I do. Okay, but that, and that for for Tony, that's but but he would figure out you know Miles played this here to to uh, to release his solo into somebody else's solo, things like that. Tony would pick up on how to get out of a solo, how to get into a solo, you know, some landmark in the middle. And yeah, we all do that. And, and, but, it, but with him, it was like, okay, I'm going to plant this here that I learned from Eric Dolphy. I'm going to plant this over here, this joke, this, this uh, Django thing, or, or this miles thing, you know, but yeah. just a scale, just like reverse, reverse the scale or, you know, turn it inside out. He, yeah. he, he, he knew a lot about that and he was set up to play fast because he kept it all in one area, you know, he, right. Yeah. Up and down from the, from the top to the bottom of the strings, but he had figured out the scales within a small space. Yeah. Interesting. And for efficiency, for efficiency in motion. Yeah. And, and, uh, I try to do the same thing. I try to keep it all kind of close, kind of close together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to just go, go get an open note. You know, if there is one, go yeah. get that open note and then work from that, you know, then, then go into some, yeah, we all have our maximum audience response uh, <laughs> kind of things that we'll throw out there when, when we feel we're losing them a little bit. You know? Right. This will work. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're not following. Okay, boom. Okay, now we're back on track. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a it's like a it's like following a, a treasure map. <laughs> so, what was the like historically? What happened? Like JD Crow had you and Tony Rice in his band at the same time. You guys were probably like nineteen or something, right? I don't. Was, was Tony the same age as you, roughly, or is he older than you? He was three years older than me. Uh, okay. So like, how did that happen? Where did he come from? How did J- how did you meet JD? How was he so smart to get you little whippersnappers <laughs> in his band? Like what, what was going on with that whole thing? Well, He had Tony, he had Tony, first of all, you know, and Tony was just, just a, a blank canvas more or less for Crow. Where was Tony from? Tony, Tony, uh, originally is from Danville, Virginia, but most of his, uh, most, he grew up mostly in California. Okay. Around LA. And were you aware of him before the JD Crow thing or was he just a kid playing with JD Crow? No, I, I, I was aware, I was aware of him, uh, but not before he was with JD Crow. I, I know that, you know, now talking with Sam and everybody of their history in, in Bluegrass Alliance, you know, in Louisville, uh-huh. that's where Tony first shows up. That That's okay the adult Tony first shows up is, is there and, and sort of Sam sort of guiding him through, you know, you need insurance, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, and giving him sort of the, the fundamentals of, of adult life. And, uh, then, but then Tony, uh, he just, you know, he just, he, he just was that guy who was going to be more interested and he loved Doc's, Playing, you know, I know he loved all these different guitar players and Clarence. You know, Clarence was his yeah. guy, but uh, but so was you know, Dan Crary and 
and all these other people that he, he would do. And he was a sponge and he just absorbed all this stuff. But he had these other, this other stuff. And met, when he met David Grisman, he went, he went up a notch. He went up a step, mm-hmm. few steps, I mean, and, and got to actually apply these things he'd been listening to. So that makes a big difference. You can listen to it all day long, but, but then to go ahead and apply it to something that some kind of music that you play, uh, yep. that's the difference. That's, that's when you've grown. That's when you've taken a step out the door there. And so what was that scene like? Like when you guys were both with J.D. Crow, were you playing like festivals and touring all over the place or was it pretty regional or like what what was the original lineup situation? And, and also, was he like a really he must have been a pretty nurturing band leader and letting you guys rip and stuff. Right. Like was Crow, that a big uh, Crow, was, Crow yeah. was totally that guy and he was a funny guy and and, and just uh, a, a real honest, you know, sit down. He'll tell you exactly what he thinks. And, and, you know, there's no pulling punches, anything like that. He just was a straight up guy. I never had a crossword with J.D. Crow ever in my life, ever knowing J.D. Loved that guy. Yeah. Uh, and I came into that band. I mean, that was a step up for me. That was a step of my musical education from the country gentlemen playing music that they were, they were doing. And, and at one point near, they were that band. And yeah. And then this is just how the evolution of all of this is going. And, and then there, then came along Mike Aldridge playing with the seldom scene and playing these different, these songs, different kinds of songs that didn't have to be breakneck speeds, but he came up with, with, you know, sort of a uh, uh, modern pop dobro kind of uh, yep. thing. Re, re, kind of, he, he reinvented the, it the way before I did. And and uh, I just I just took it took the fiddle tunes and the faster tunes and then figured out all the other stuff you know clued into what Mike was doing and I, mean, there, I had nobody to listen to besides Mike and Josh Graves that was kind of it that mm-hmm. that were really going to teach me something and uh, but playing with JD and 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 I, first first what you know it was a very it's all happened in a pretty a uh, short amount of time that uh, I played played on the record, uh, and then the record that was in '75, and uh, yeah. oh god, this is so long ago. Uh, but it's so long ago, yeah. <laughs> but you know, but but I was yeah, I was 18, then I turned 19 while I was in Crow's band, and yeah. and uh, we were just all so young and and ready for you know whatever what did what did you learn about recording because those recordings are so good and they really stand up as as like you know they don't sound dated or shitty or anything like they just sound like a great band playing really well was it pretty simply done those records or like did you learn stuff about making records in in those early recordings i had no idea what they were going to record but but i was getting used to being in the studio uh it's a different it's a different world and, and i love it because uh, you get clearly, or you get another chance, uh, right? <laughs> and, and you, and I've become a good, pretty good editor too. But uh, uh, but uh, it was you know it was all analog tape machine two eight two track six uh, two inch sixteen track at mm-hmm. track 
studios there in uh, Silver Springs where we recorded that record. And what state? Silver Springs, Maryland. Maryland. Okay. And right outside, right in the inside the Beltway in DC. Yeah. But, uh, that's where the the scene the scene had been. Seldom scene had been recording there. Okay. And kind of where it was a a bluegrass friendly recording studio. Yeah. That had the right kind of microphones and and an engineer that kind of knew where to place the microphones. Because I hadn't been in the studio that much. I didn't know exactly where the microphone should go, but I had a pretty good idea that it didn't go all the way up front where all the bass was, and it didn't go all the way to the back where all the trouble was. You know, you want to find, if you only had one microphone to use, you want to find the best spot on your instrument where the, the sound was coming out, you know, the best mix of the sound of your instrument. Because, you know, we all, all you know, guitars and mandolins and violins, I guess, have one, just sort of one great big spot where you can, you yep. cover them, but but when it gets to banjos and dobros, and things like that that have different have metal and wood, uh, you've got to search around a little bit to find the sweet spot, and yeah. and then then I got into stereo miking, uh, finding you know just completely uh, encapsulating the whole sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Getting on the on the perimeters of of each of those two sounds that I wanted to get and putting them together, yeah. And and you, that way you could even you could pan, you know, you could do right, make like it real wide, whatever you wanted, wherever you wanted to yeah. put it, you know, or you wanted it to be concentrated. But but that that's stuff that I learned, you know, starting in there. I think the first record I made. The first record I ever made was in uh, New York City at Vanguard Studios with uh, with the Country Gentleman, and I stayed in the Chelsea Hotel. Cool. There's it, an experience for you. I was 16. Oh, shit. First time I'd ever flown, first time I'd been to New York City, first time I'd recorded. It was all like mind-blowing, you know, and at the same time, I'm... I'm staying there, you know, a couple of years later, Sid Vicious is there, you know, and, <laughs> and I, th- I think Andy Warhol was there at the time. And, wow. and a guy I met later, uh, Sandy Bull, who was at one time a huge uh, guy, part of the folk, the folk, yeah. the great folk scare of the sixties. Uh, he was involved in that, but he was a, he was a junkie and he was living upstairs in the, in uh, Chelsea, <laughs> that's where you. That's where you go when you're when you're messed up and you're in New York and you need some shit. <laughs> why they put us in that's that's why they put us in that hotel, I suppose. <laughs> and but I, I I didn't leave that street. I, I ate at the same restaurant every day. I mean, I wasn't there, but like three or four days. It seems like we were there for two weeks, but it because of so much input. Uh, yeah. You know, New York City. The first time you go there is a is a is you can you can either be scary or exciting, whichever way you want to go with it. Yeah. And I decided to go the scary line that time, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but since then I'm I'm all over it. I I'm, I love New York City. I I love a place like that. Me too. Uh, but uh, but so it was a it was a big step for me to go from that to, to Crow. But one of the reasons I did it was because Ricky Skaggs and I were both in the Country Gentlemen together. And Larry Rice quit JD's band and uh, 
uh, Ricky took that position. And he said, J.D., you know, some of these songs would sound good with Dobro on them. And J.D. was like, oh, I don't know if we want to have somebody from outside the band, you know, or another instrument or anything like that. But I got in it. I was only going to play on like two songs, but I ended up playing on like eight or nine. So I think I won him over. And I think you passed the audition. I think I passed the audition and then. Wasn't long after wasn't long after that at all that that I moved to Lexington and joined the band. Oh, okay, and so that's that's where you sort of started Boone Creek with with yeah. Ricky Skaggs was yeah it? because okay. we were only in I was only in the uh, the the JD Crow band from a couple of years right June first uh, sometime in September when we came back from Japan and it was all over Tony was going to work with David Grisman and Ricky and I always wanted to start a Keith Whitley was going to be in that band and Mark oh, wow. and some other guys, but Ricky and I were the only ones that ended up being in the band and getting other guys to, to, to take the places of the, the ringers that we had all set up. You know? Right. So, yeah. So what was the idea with Boone Creek? Like, were you guys deliberately trying to be like a younger generation of players that were, that were, you know, making a statement oh, as yeah. far as, yeah. We, we wanted, we, you know, we, we didn't write. So we had all of these older songs, but we give them this, this different bend, you know, they were, yeah. we, we took what we knew from, you know, all these other musics that we've been listening to and interjected those, those, those things in it. Plus we had an electric bass for the first time. So uh, that kind of, loosen things up a little bit that and probably pissed some pissed some people off eh pissed a lot of people off and <laughs> but that didn't seem to last very long you know after they right. after they caught on to what we were actually doing uh then they then they then they were kind of okay with all the rest of it you know but but we had we built quite a, a fan base you know in the short tech period of time that we were together for like two and a half three years and uh and I went from there uh, to yeah, what happened. Like what happened to that band? It, well, we got we we really started to get to where we were really the festivals were coming in. Things were really starting to starting to pop. And and Ricky got an offer from Amy Lou. <sighs> OK. And that's what that was the end of the band. And okay. and I I went with uh, Buck White, Sharon and Cheryl. And uh, with with that band, uh, Wes took off. Uh, Wes back, went back to North Carolina. Uh, Balcom Terry Balcom went pretty much straight to Doyle Lawson. Had gotten out of the Country Gentleman at that point and started and started his band. And Terry Balcom was the, his banjo first banjo player. And awesome. and the other guys just kind of like went, you know with the wind, but, uh, I, I kept working. I kept working. I, I, I moved first to the country gentleman for a couple of months. And then I so, of course sort of gave myself a deadline. I said, if I don't get, so if something doesn't start happening, you know, pretty soon, I, I can always go to college, you know? Now, okay. Oh, so we don't, all I can yeah. go to college. So, so, uh, but then, but then you ended up with Emmy Lou. Like, I don't know if you were in her band or not, but you're on those records, right? Like, that was right then, wasn't it? I ended up being on the records, yeah. And that was that was Ricky too, pulling, going, you know, this 
this would be nice, you know, to Brian O'Hearn if, if Mike Aldridge had had played on a couple of things for her originally, and they liked okay. the sound of it. And then when they got Ricky in there, he kind of said, "Well, I, you know, my friend Gary Douglas can do this, and so so here I come and go do that." And and the whites, uh, the girls were singing on the records too, so right. better band to go out and open for her than us, you know. So we right. okay. go out and do our thing. And then it was just Buck, the two girls, and me, and then wow. opening for Amy Lou Harris, and it was great. And they loved us, and we sort of became part of her band, and it was just a big caravan yeah. at that point. Yeah, so so that record, so Roses in the Snow was probably like, I don't know, 77, 78, or something like that, and yeah. that's like a, I find that to be a really interesting record, because it's, it's so traditional instrumentation-wise, and like the approach is pretty trad, but the songs are like a whole different ball of wax. And yeah. the way that you guys play is also different. Like it's it's a different approach to playing bluegrass. And it sort of comes across as bluegrass, but not really. Yeah, I can't, I can't uh, remember. There, were, there wasn't really a heavy drum kit on that song. It wasn't a drum. They weren't drum records. They weren't full band record, country band records for Emmy. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any drums on the on on Roses in the Snow. I think I, it's a bluegrass instrumentation. He was talking about this could be the other day. We were talking. Uh, she and Ricky and I were talking. We were, had occasion to sit down uh, and do uh, a little podcast thing, and and uh, we were talking, and Emmy Lou said she took so much flack from the record company from, from Warner brothers saying there's no way anybody's going to like this. Oh my God. They want you to do elite hotel. They want you to do right. luxury line. That's what they want. Yep. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, so do I, you know, <laughs> so why can't this be part of it too? You know, and, and it ended up being it. And, and so she had a multifaceted show, uh, but but yeah, she had a lot of trouble convincing the record company that that this would work at all. And Weird. there were like there was Blue Kentucky Girl then. Uh, Blue Kentucky Girl was more in the in the hot band line, and yep. and then uh, then then this one we're talking about, and then after that she cut she cut a Light of the Stable uh, the Christmas record around the same time. It's sort of the same band. You did those records in L.A., right? Yeah, we we um, had they had a uh, Emmy Lou and it was and Brian. Uh, it was like in their house or something, right? They had a they had a house on on the street called Lania Lane. It was off of Coldwater Canyon when you would cut across the the mountain from from Ventura Boulevard that went into to Hollywood, cut across cut across the mountain, and and. Uh, Coldwater Canyon was the road you went across the mountain on. You could end up on Mulholland Drive. You could go up there, or you could go on down and go going in closer to, to LA. But uh, there's your there's your geography lesson for the day. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Ricky and I got in in a, in a little fender bender with John Boyd one time on the, <laughs> on that road, and he was really rude. But really, nothing really happened. But uh, they had this, this. So they had this house, and they had the Anactron truck, Brian's truck, backed up to the house, which was the studio, and everything. All the lines ran in the house, and but the big one big mudslide took the house out, 
And, oh shit. And took, uh, and Brian moved the truck in advance. So he kept the truck safe. And I mean like while you were making the record, the house got totaled all the gear. Yeah. Yeah. It was, oh my God. It was right in that period that the, yeah, the mountain came down on and every night we'd be recording coyotes, you know, the outside surrounding the house. Cause they heard the music and, They'd come down and howl at the house. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, an interesting period. Yeah. But yeah. Do you remember uh, like what you would have learned from that situation where you've got like clearly your role is to highlight the singer who's like a big star at the time, but Brian's the producing also. And they're, they're a, I, th- I guess they're husband and wife at the time, but also he's a pretty like, He's opinionated guys as far as what i know like what was that whole dynamic like oh we followed brian whatever brian said yeah. did, you know and brian gave me the most uh, the best and and most used probably advice i've ever had for being in the studio and especially in backing up a vocal uh we were early on into into uh whatever we were doing whatever record we were doing and i and I played something and, and he stopped and he said, he said, the best thing you can do is stay out of her range. When she's singing, don't, don't, don't get in her range. Cause then you start to fight each other and you can actually cancel each other out yep. just by playing in the same register. So one, some divided up, you know, be somewhere else, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it'll work. And, and that, that is the honest to God truth, man. That should be in the Bible. I mean, don't play on the top of the female singer. At that time, were you like, oh my God, yeah, I am totally doing that. I need to change. Or were you already like thinking that way? I was already, I already kind of thought that way, but I, it was just one situation where I got in there and he just reaffirmed it for me that mm-hmm. you don't, that you don't do that. I mean, that you're, you're painting. You I mean, it's like you're, you're an artist and you're, you're surrounding this thing and you don't want to detract from it. You want, yeah. you want it, you want to, uh, you want to enhance it. It's what you really want to do. You might, you might want to play a harmony against it, even on a couple of notes, which ghosts, ghosts, and sounds like another person, whether Dobro does it. But, uh, and Ricky had a really good fiddle thing going on where you had a viola between two violins and it was like a fiddle sandwich kind of thing that was yeah. really, uh, a, if you go back and listen to those records, when you hear the fiddle solos, you hear all these three and it's like, oh wow, well, three is better than one. <laughs> yeah. Gets the point across. So for me, like as a fan of your playing and sort of being aware of, you know, I, I, I'm sure I don't know everything you've ever done, but I, I'm aware of certain periods of your career. And that to me is sort of like late, early period of, of your playing and your, and your session work. Do you remember what you were playing like guitar wise and, and how you were miking it back in those days? Cause that for me is like a real high point of how the Dobro sounds on those Emmy Lou records is spectacular. That was a guitar. I think, the, I think there were, First things I played on her her records was that was an old Dobro. First yep. first things I played, and then I then I moved to a guitar called an RQ Jones, uh, Rudy Jones, a guy out in Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere, was building the next version of a Dobro guitar. You know, in the when, when would that have been that you hooked up I with was him? Seventy nine, eighty. Okay, uh, and I think I got that guitar in eighty. 
and used that guitar all the way up to, you know, 87, 88, when I started using Tim Shearhorn guitars. So what, what did the RQ Jones give you that you weren't getting from an old Dobro? It was, it was multi-voice. It had more voices. It had, it, okay. it had a, more of a singing high end and it was constructed differently uh, where it didn't have like Dobro's uh, brand, Dobro brand, Dobro's have a, have a, in the, in the body of the guitar, have a sound well that's built into the guitar. And, Rudy Jones took that out and and put support posts like her in violins and basses. Yeah. To transmit the sound from the top to the bottom and and let this air move in, you know, this it's just if you said think of it like water, air, you know, the the music that all the air is moving in the guitar like water would or light would be reflected. It's moving now. Oh, interesting. And and so he built a guitar that had posts inside, sound posts inside of it, instead of this this uh, round barrel that had holes in it that would let the sound out, but didn't truly disperse the sound that's coming off the underside of that cone. It's right. pretty good, pretty pretty uh, uh, difficult instrument to describe how it works. But but all of the basses up in the top chamber of the guitar, you know where the screens are. The screen, yeah. And now and then I started to take popping the screen out on the treble side because I could make I knew that's where all the bass from the guitar came. So I would get the microphone. I'd pop that screen. I'd get more bass from the guitar, and I could then oh. get, get between find my sweet spot of the cover plate and the screen and and because that screen was open there was more bass so i could move i could move back into the treble a little bit more you know and edge or or it depended on the track if the track was really thick i wanted a thinner sound if i if the track was wide open woody instruments you know on the track i would i would uh, did you keep the screens on hand and like pop them in and out depending on what you were looking for yeah Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a it was a, just a another way of of you know instead of moving my chair, <laughs> yeah, pop a screen and there's more low end. And uh, if I needed more low end for my solo or for my backup or something, I would lean that, you know. Right. And sometimes you know this huge beautiful bass note would come come out of the guitar instead of it being sort of damped down. But I keep the screens in the guitar when I'm playing it live. I'm, most people have just pulled the screens completely, but I yeah. th- I think there I think there's a use for those. I think it I think uh, I think they they sort of disperse the bass a little bit and make it a little yeah yeah a little yeah. There's some compression. There's some co- mm-hmm. com- compression there, and uh, it hold it kind of holds it to get it kind of holds it into a uniform sound. And when you start popping screen popping screens. Right. You're messing with the design, you know, yeah. a little bit, yeah. but you know, you, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can, you can, uh, you can even make it work, make it work. Right. Right. And that's what I, I so when I started popping the screens, then I started noticing everybody's popping their screens now. So like, <laughs> do I play a trick on them and put them back in? 
or what do I do? <laughs> and and uh, but that's just the way it went. And now the, put toilet paper over them, and suddenly everyone's got toilet paper. Over yeah, them. so like put toilet paper <laughs> over a, a, an NS10, a monitor. <laughs> we used to do that. Yamaha came out with these great speakers. Um, yeah, man, for near field speakers, but the tweeter was too bright. So we put a roll. Uh, we take. <laughs> a couple sheets of uh, Kleenex or toilet paper and paste it over that right over that tweeter and it it leveled brought it back within normal specs you know where you, yeah. just, you could listen to it longer yeah this show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right then, let's get back to the show. Did you do any other like unusual stuff as far as miking? Like I did a session with Bill Vorndick a, a while ago and he's like, with Jerry, man, we always put a piece of tape over the, like he had some weird thing with tape over the at the ends, like the ball ends of the strings. And he was doing it to my, to my dobro. And I was like, wow, that's weird, but okay. But he, but he said that there was some <laughs> tape thing. Like, did you ever do any like really unusual? Oh yeah, we didn't, we didn't tape. I don't remember taping anything. We we would, you know, that space between the cover, between the bridge and the and the and the uh, uh, the bring uh, the bridge and and the, and the tailpiece. There yeah. there are a lot of harmonics in there, so we would put yeah. a lot of foam underneath that to kill, okay. kill those harmonics, and then everything happened in the front. You know, that helped. Right, right. You didn't get any ghost tones, any ghost, any ghost uh, sounds. You know, any any whining or rattling things, you know, dobros are, you know, bros, oh, yeah. they can take, yeah. a, you know, they can create their, a, a new sound for themselves all the time. You have to hunt it down, finding the of it. 
So in the in the eighties, at some point, you switched over to a Shearhorn. A Shearhorn, yeah. Tim Shearhorn came to the show I was doing. Uh, American Music Shop it was a TV show we yeah. were doing down here, and he brought you know his first Dobro, and I went, man, this is this is definitely a step up, and this this is a step ahead from where we are right now. So I said, yeah, I'm, you know. If you, I'd love for you to build me one of these guitars. So he, he built me one, and I said, you know, it, it, it was the same size as a regular size Dobro size body, of mm-hmm. just like a Dobro copy. And I said, what what if you built like a bigger bigger one? You can build okay. build a guitar this small that sounds as good. You build a bigger guitar, not a full size dreadnought guitar, not that big, but you know, adapt, take your take what you're doing to the inside of the guitar. And just make the whole guitar bigger, but keep your, keep your. Uh, and deeper too, or the same depth? Deeper, deeper, yeah, thicker, and, and uh, just a bigger body, just more sound, you know? Yeah. And it worked. You know, it really worked. I mean, and then that's all anybody wanted was a Zierhorn guitar. Right. And, and, uh, and I, I did a deal with Gibson guitar, with Gibson when they bought Dobro. Uh, they were they were really wanting to bring Dobro back, and I was too. I thought, man, that'd be great if, if you could go into a music store and buy a Dobro, a decent Dobro that's actually a Dobro, yeah, for a decent price. You know, yeah. not not go like go crazy. You know, but we designed. I did this, the design, and and we we built this guitar. And when you put your name on a guitar, everybody thinks you built it yourself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> any complaints they come to you they don't go to the guitar company right. they, they, you hear you start hearing about how your guitars suck and, and uh, the Gibsons were terrible and they kept every time I'd go in and visit the Gibson like the Jerry Douglas Gibsons were terrible the, yeah a few of them were good I'd get a guy I'd teach a guy how to set it up and then they'd take him yeah. take him to the electric department you know and then oh, put man. some new guy in there who'd never seen a Dobro before and it Ugh. just kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. And I was getting complaints. Your guitars, man, really? That you, you did that. And I, and I, so I got a divorce from uh, Gibson. And, okay. But I was looking for somebody to do a signature guitar. And Tim wasn't really, he was at that point c- kind of trying to slow down. And I'm wanting to speed up. And it's just right. man operation. And it wasn't going to happen. So, mm-hmm. so I, I went to Paul Beard, who, who was building bigger body guitars. He was building the one for Mike Aldridge that was amazing. It sounded like a piano. This thing was yep. huge sounding. And so I went to Paul and, and uh, we talked about, you know, designs and stuff on the inside and stuff like that. And we, and we produced a signature model guitar. And we've got two. And that's what you're, that's what you're currently playing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm playing a Blackbeard right now. My, the original guitar that he and I designed together uh, was made out of uh, this Sapelli, this this mahogany that was was uh, very very uh, ha- had a lot of figure in it, had a, a quilted sort of a quilted effect. You could see down into the grain of this guitar. It's a beautiful guitar, beautiful wood, and uh, <clears throat> so we only had enough wood to make. 50 of those. Okay. So we started making 
And I, I said, you know, the first Dobro I ever saw, it was must have been like a Dobro trainer or, or something, you know, because it had yeah. no binding on it. It was black and it had a red fingerboard. And he said, a red mm. fingerboard? Nobody wants that. I said, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I said, like not red wood, but like red, like painted red, you mean? No, it, it, well, the Dobro may have been painted red. But but this okay. we know we just uh, we just took some mahogany and or some kind of wood and stained it to where it's stained it very yeah. very reddish looking cool different from the the guitar is totally black but it's yeah. trans, but it's translucent finish so you can still see the grain but it's black and we called that a black beard and that's the big that's the biggest selling guitar he has still okay after all yeah. the time. So and I love it. And then we started doing. Then I put this hip shot thing on it, where I could change the tunings instead of instead of taking two guitars with me, I could just take one guitar. And so is that? Are there individual uh, switches where you're flicking them in to change the tuning of the entire guitar, or is it just one thing? There was one. There's just one. There there was a trilogy. Okay. They had That's I had I had a trilogy, and you could get three tunings out of the trilogy. Yeah, really, but. Uh, it was it was it's slow if you want to if you want to change to a different you know that tur that third tuning you're going to be there for a couple seconds you know yeah just getting just remembered which ones to pull of those six right and but this is in this is one lever and it changes everything from from a, a g normal g dobro tuning to a drop d Open, wow. open drop D that so that that bottom string drops from G all the way down to D and it comes up in tune every time and it sort of does it compensate the other strings too yeah well there, there are tuning there are individual tuning little tuning okay. on each string back on that on the hit on the hip shot so amazing if you open it up and in that that D string is too sharp you can you can you can give it a little bit more slack back here, or you can tighten it down. You can tune it down. You know, yeah. you, you can tune the string up or down. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it's 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 not really it's not a hard thing. I mean, it's just Dave Borsoff, this guy, just designed. He said it was the first thing he designed, and yeah. he threw it in the corner. So didn't think anybody'd ever use it. I said, go get it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, the other really cool innovation you have is the Aura system that 
are you still using that? The, the yeah. Jerry Douglas or, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a funny story about that. I, I was playing at the Vancouver Island music festival up in Comox and you were there and you were, I, I can't remember even who you were playing with, but you did a Dobro workshop. My friend Ivan Rosenberg was on it and a couple other people were there um, and they, I think you went last, like out of, you know, it was like one of those sort of round robin workshop things and Ivan played somebody else played and they're all playing into mics and you know it sounds windy and airy and nice and then you come out with your thing plugged into a twin (laughs) and just fucking rip it right and it's wicked and it sounds amazing but it's like 10 times louder than anyone else and then like i was standing backstage watching you turn to ivan after that and everyone's going crazy and you turn to ivan you go you got to get loud man Well, it did, it did give you, it did, that was the whole reason for the aura that setup yeah. was to, was to be able to compete with telecasters, you know, and, right. and electric instruments, you know, you, you know, at a certain point you suffer because you're playing a hollow guitar, you know, yeah. they're playing solid wood guitars or, or that aren't feeding back and going crazy inside going, what's this sound? What's that? And, uh, so, but the aura gave me the gave me the capabilities of playing loud uh, through you know because it was going. We first had to, to invent a um, a pickup, the a bridge yep. pickup that would work because the uh, Dobros have a screen, uh, a whole a, a screw in the middle, a tension screw for the for the cone, so yep. to work around that. So we couldn't have one piece going through there. We had to, we had to break it down in two pieces. And make metal parts, make them, and then find which wood to put on top of that that wouldn't be defeating if you wanted to play the guitar acoustically. Right. I wanted to be able to play it acoustically and to be able to have the pickup involved. So we we went through all these different kinds of wood, you know, the woods that you would think would, oh, this will certainly work, you know, some ebony or something to bring bring back the things that the things that you've lost in the pickup to bring those things back. And we found, we found out that Tusk, a man-made, uh, it's a man-made uh, wood, but it, it's, okay. it's like bone only yeah. with fewer imperfections. <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, and you, and we put that on top and bam, there it was, it all came back. Wow. And so that took care of the pickup part. But as far as like the, the electronics, the, modeling part that's an incredible feat of engineering like that's a i have one and it's it's like it solves all my problems of like playing live because it's just like it sounds wicked yeah it does and you can you can uh you can jack it up and you can and if yeah if you're going with you know no amp on stage if you're like i'm running ears all the time on stage i can i'm playing with just for instance i just finished this tour with Tommy Emanuel who who plays just guitar and his guitar is plugged a hole with plug that he's got side fills in and and he's got it's massive right it's huge it's like it's like getting inside his guitar right so I go out there and I said there's no way I can do this without ears and uh and my rig and my and my aura rig and I got no problem I'm just as loud as him no problem. Yep. Hearing myself or hearing him, it's e- it's easy. 
And it, so was that a was that a long process getting that to the point where it sounded good? Because that couldn't yeah. have been easy to do. The Aura boxes were originally a big metal box. I mean, there was a lot packed in there until they finally got oh, yeah. how to shrink it all down into one pedal, <laughs> one little pedal. But uh, but. Larry Fishman actually came to Billborn Dicks and we put up all, all of, we took a whole bunch of Bill's mics and, and not all of them at the same time. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And not all at the same time, like Fishman was doing a thing where they bundle a whole bunch of mics and then you just play and, right. and it would give you a, it would use that. And uh, we didn't do that. We, we'd use one mic at a time yeah. and get the, Thorndick has an incredible collection of one of really great microphones, really great yes. vintage Neumanns and 251s, you know, Telefunkins, everything. He's been collecting that stuff for 50 years and, uh, yeah. and knows how to use it. <laughs> That's the difference. And, yeah. but there was, there was, I had Larry Fishman there with, with, with the, uh, with the app that changed would take, I, I'd play into the microphone and we take the, the, the uh, pickup signal at the same time. And then the pickup signal would start emulating the mic sound. Wow. And it was just the same way they matched. And, Crazy. and uh, we did them at different heights. We did it six inches, 12 inches, eight inches, drop D tunings, all these different tunings. And then I had, you know, I had like a hundred, of these samples to go through a hundred. They don't call them samples. They call them um, um, uh, whatever they call their samples. And, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, cause it's not, cause you're not triggering a sample. It's that's no. the amazing thing about the technology is you're like, you're not triggering a sound. It's like a, it's just altering your sound to yeah. give it a different. It's like yeah. you, you're, you're using the microphones, all the different microphones, like you would an EQ, but, and, uh, yeah, and so we we even recorded. They said, "Well, we need to put an SM57 in there." I went, "Isn't that what we're trying to get away from?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and they said, "Some people like the sound of it, you know." And, and uh-huh. okay, there are going to be sixteen samples, sixteen impressions on here, and number sixteen—that's the SM. That's the fifty-seven. That's the end. Yeah, when all else is gone. <laughs> so, SM57 is a microphone made by sure that you can hammer nails with and then play sure. gig with. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is, it is. It's an amazing thing and it's been around forever. Presidents, you know, everybody all over the world is using the Sure 57 everywhere. Yeah. And then at 58 yep. with the ball mic on it. But but we did we did uh the first microphone in the in the whole aura is a is a U67 which is my favorite recording microphone. Okay. And uh then the then the third one is an RCA77 which is nice and warm and nice ribbon mic. And nice big ribbon mic, yeah. And that's the one I use on stage the most. It, the third one. The third one. And if hmm. if I if I need to I find it if I need to cut through the band more I'll go to the 67 number 1. And it gives okay. me high end that gets me up over the top of the, okay. the yeah. drums or the whatever is pinging up there in that zone. And yeah. 
I found those to be my two first go-tos, you know, to try to EQ myself into the band. Right. Interesting. Yeah. It, it, and and I, that's how I, that's how I think of those microphones and all those different, you can get the, you know, it, it comes with a, tells you which each one of those 16, what microphone yeah. and at what, and at what level we were at, how far away from the guitar we were. Right. And, uh, it's, it's, it, I find them, I use them more as EQ and then think I'm thinking of them as microphones. Do you still use a mic on stage or not really? No, no, I don't need to. If, if I'm you, if I'm doing a solo show where I'm just kind of got staying in the same place all the time, uh, yep. I'll put a mic up just to catch the ambient sound off the dobro and that help. It helps. It's, it's a good mm-hmm. sound. I mean, that's why I wanted to play it in the first place. It's the way it sounds. Yep. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a. I do use a microphone in that situation and I sing a little bit. So I've got some kind of microphone up there, but mainly I wanted, I wanted freedom. You know, I wanted to be able to walk around on the stage like an electric guitar player. I didn't want to stand yeah. an amp. I didn't want to stand. I mean, there was no amp. I didn't use an amp. And, and just, I was just, and then I could go wireless. I, I did. Yeah. I didn't do all bets are off. I did. Yeah. Then you can walk out into the crowd and do it. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not too much into that, but I'll say <laughs> crowd surfing. I'll step on the stage during, in these days anyway. Yeah, and, and uh the, the aura is an amazing advancement i mean people keep trying to come up with something else that that does it and there there is a what what is it uh the uh it's got a name and i keep wanting to call it an oscar but it's not an oscar it's a it's a uh mm. do you mean like the kemp the kemper or something oh the kemper is great i i, I just found i i'm into the kemper and i'm also into uh one called a rev that right, yeah. it's got a bunch of different cabinets in it, but that's that's mm-hmm. more for electric lap steels kind yeah. of because because uh, and I'm getting I'm getting off off getting out of context here, but but the, the mainly the the stomp boxes you buy out there on the market are not made for acoustic instruments. No, they're made to to read a, a, an electric guitar or an electric instrument. Uh, yeah feed and and so i'm really looking for you know i'm now i'm really like who can build the best uh you know fuzz box for you know or big muff for <laughs> a dobro <laughs> yeah yeah do that <laughs> that's what you need because because it because they react differently you know they they yeah. they're 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 different than they they change your tone. They do, they do all kinds of crazy things to your tone. If you have to go back and fix it later. And, uh, they're good to have because after you've played Dobro for about 40 years, you, you kind of want to hear something else. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so I could get this undobro, you know, go through an envelope filter <laughs> into a free, yeah, a little envelope filter, a little big muff. You'll be, yeah. Yeah, you'll be unrecognizable. Oh yeah. I've tried to be unrecognizable <laughs> for a long time now, but I keep coming back to this sound that I love, you know. And yeah. Yeah, I get pretty far away from it once in a while, but every but then I've got some old Dobros in here hanging on the wall that I pull one of them off the wall and sit down and I'm ten years old all over again. Yeah. Fall in love. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. 
but but there is something about just the, the sound of the instrument just as it is that's it's so unique and you can you can change it from being unique to just being you know like anybody's sound just by plugging it into something and then it's yeah. all gone so sure. what i've been trying to do for years was to create to to be able to to make that sound portable you know without a microphone being in for be, being tied to a microphone being you know nailed to the i'd say you succeeded it totally works it's the it's a crazy piece of uh equipment yeah i, I think it's brilliant it's bill born dick and, and 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 larry fishman those two guys right on they're the ones and whoever that whoever that little fellow in korea was that came up with <laughs> Uh, hey, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but I, I would be remiss not to ask you about one of one of my favorite records of all time that you played on and just see if you had any recollections about the sessions for it, which was Bill Frizzell's record Nashville. I've had Bill on the show and I've also talked to Victor Krauss about it. It's kind of one of those records for me that like, you know, it was it's a real monument of both of tone, but of playing and composition and everything. Uh, I and I know you kind of came into that process late right like they did some sessions before you joined but can you just tell me anything about doing that record and any recollections you have of sort of like figuring out what it was bill was after i was i was so i was so shaking about going in because i was such a huge bill frizzell fan mm-hmm. i was so shaken shaken by you know so excited about going in there to to do this session i forgot my pick bag that day <laughs> I'd tell him, but I had to go to a music store and buy a bar and picks to do the first really? day of the session because and then ran home and got mine, you know, in the middle of the day. Yeah. But I got there and I didn't have a bar, you know. I went, Oh, oh shit. Uh, I gotta go to Corner Music, which still was here. In twelve South, yeah. Yeah. And uh were, were you guys at Sound Emporium or something? Here, or where were you? Here doing in Sound Emporium A. Yeah. Yeah. And and he was playing, you know, and he, I had the tunes and everything, and 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 uh, they had done they had done some stuff. I think with uh, I, this is just when I was joining Allison because right. Ron had smashed his finger, his index right index finger, in a car door and couldn't play okay. with that finger, but he was playing banjo with his with his ring finger and his middle finger. <laughs> It probably that, sounded awesome. Yeah, yeah, a different approach. <laughs> Once in a while, that index finger would hit the string and just make a really sorryful sound, you know. Just forget that. Ow! Yeah, and a scream right behind it. Yeah, yeah. But and that's why he was playing when I joined uh, Acus. He was first week or so. He was playing. <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> Ron was always hurting himself, but but the uh, but going in with with Bill and he did a song. He he, I kept noticing. I mean, there was this this sound that he was playing, and and I said, "Have you ever heard? Have you ever listened to Chet Atkins with the Everly Brother?" You know, and he said, "Not really." Really, this is that sound this is you're playing that exact sound that's what i'm hearing but he also had a little a little sampler out in front of him a little looper that could create you know all these 
crazy little ding, bing, bing, bang, bing, 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 bang, bang. They were no, no, they were in no beautiful. They were in no order. They were in no timing. They were in no uh, scale or anything like that. They were just like beautiful little sparkly little things, you know, just that the, the whole track would they flow through the whole track. Yeah. But they were kind of invisible, but but just the songs were, you know, for me it was a it was a it was a different kind of music because I I was I was there to play jazz. So I was thinking I was I'm I'm jumping into the jazz pool today, mm-hmm. but it was uh it was that, but it was just like he just like the name of the record. You know, he cut it in Nashville and he took he came there and just kind of soaked up the the whole attitude of what was going on around in town and and just with the people that he was playing with. Yeah. what they were like he would he he would he, he reaches out and grabs pieces of everybody's characteristics and builds builds his did it come together pretty quickly like as far as the finished product was it pretty much like yeah. you guys walked in and we and yeah. that was it we were we were there i think three days and taking mm-hmm. it real easy I mean, i'm not not trying to cut a ralph stanley three three records in one day right but we were there we were there and doing you know two or three songs a day but really, yeah. but really drilling down on them and, and uh, making sure was, he liked everything that happened. Was Bill giving you much input as to what he wanted out of you, or it was he was just letting you have at her? Just where to play. That was bit, yeah. pretty much it, you know. And and, yeah. and and I was, I really, you know, was such a fan and and had heard enough of his the space that he creates. How, yeah, how to use that space, but not take it away you know that was the that was the uh, conundrum was to how do you how do you add to this without taking away something so it was really fun it really made you think you know and really made before you played that note how's this note gonna reflect on what he just played you know right you think you think three notes ahead you know, <laughs> and 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 he's such a beautiful guy. I mean, it it was all there. Were, there are no mistakes, right? Yeah, there are yeah. no mistakes. They're happy accidents. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> the The last thing I just wanted to ask you about was the the recent record you did. That's obviously done really well and is up for Grammy now with with John Hyatt. And um, I know you did that at RCA Studios. Just one, hoping you could tell me a little bit about those sessions. I mean, it's with your band. It's really acoustic. It's really like a joyful sounding record and sounds beautiful. Um, can you tell me just about recording in that space and like how the record was done and stuff like that? Have you worked with John before? Sure. I, I, had, I had worked with John just on a couple of occasions. And, and but, but, you know, he's, he's such an interesting guy. I had kept close, you know, just kept having conversations with him over the years, just stay in contact yeah. with him and, and not knowing if we'd ever play music together at all. It wasn't that kind of thing. I was just interested in him as a, just a friend and a person. And we didn't see each other that much. We worked together on the Circle B Unbroken record. It was the first time I worked with them. Oh, he's on that? He wrote a song and, and Roseanne Cash sang the song. Oh. And, uh, but he was there and Roseanne was singing. And we were all, I was sort of in the staff band on that record. You miss it. 
it's the longest studio gig I've ever had, you know, for two weeks, just, just like punch your card and sit down in your seat. And hear- wow. That went on for a couple of weeks. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Amazing. Like, wow. Okay. John Denver's here. John Denver and, and Johnny Cash are here today. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, them. Uh, somebody, <laughs> somebody asked me if I'd ever recorded with John, with, uh, with, uh, uh, who did I say? Uh, uh, Johnny Cash and, and uh, who was the other guy? Oh, uh, John Denver. Uh, and I, yeah. no, I don't think so. And they said, yeah, you did. <laughs> Why'd you ask me? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, the, was that was that record done at at RCA too? No, that one was done at at, at Scruggs Sound. That was long. Oh, okay. Scruggs, uh, uh, Randy Scruggs had a studio, and uh, but the RCA B is a tricky place. I mean, that's they've got an X on the floor where Elvis would sing, would stand, yeah. and it was it's way in the back of the room. Really, but somebody, uh, one of one of. I've heard that when Chet went into Chet Atkins first went into that room and that was going to be his workshop, you know? Yeah. He cut so many, that's where all the gigantic ancient songs that we all write songs from now. Well, that's where all that stuff was cut. And, yeah. and it's got a, a tile floor, Lenovo yeah. tile floor, which is hard as a rock. And mm-hmm. then it's got this acoustic tile everywhere. But that wasn't enough to make the room not go bing bong everywhere. And so an engineer, the first engineer they had in there, Chet fired him and got this guy in who walked around the room and said, the room here, we can make the room sound less bright. We can, you know, Hmm. kind of treated the ceiling a little bit, but not much. And, but they had big arms that would swing out from the wall and they could put these big deck of trees on there, you know, put yep. three, 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 uh, two fifties, you know, these big old cars, uh, these big old, uh, Neumann. Two condensers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just beautiful microphones and have three of those hanging over the string section. They put right. the string section there and they just roll out this thing and it, there they go. You know, they were set up for, the the uh the nashville sound and it was and that's all the records came out and sounded kind of the same after a while but not right but not those first everly brothers records and uh, all that stuff you know that stuff those were done there too those were the done everly there too stuff. yeah yeah amazing so this was in, this was right in the top of covid too so we were originally going to have to break down and set up every day because of tours Oh, shit. And thank Did God, you want to do that? Thank God COVID hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stopped the tours. <laughs> so we had an indefinite stretch of just getting in there and, and setting up and leaving it set up. Baffles, you know, everything we want. How long did you stay set? How long was the, was the whole record? Four days. Four days. Four days cutting. Four days cutting, probably five yeah. or six days mixing. I take longer to mix than I do to cut, to record because I like. Do you get in, like? Are you a technical guy? Do you get involved in the mixing stuff, or do, are you just? Yeah, I, so I, you're okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm always throwing ideas, but I love having a great engineer. You know, yeah, I need a, I need a great engineer. Born Dick, was, who engineered that record? Uh, uh, Sean Sullivan. Sean Sullivan did, and uh, yeah, that guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, and you know. 
he's doing all kinds of records and he was working he was working in a in a you know over at the butcher shop over there at, at, at Bur- he's mostly at, at cowboy arms now right yeah i think so and, and mark yeah. and mark uh uh that used to have a studio over in, in 12 south mark's got got one over he bought grandpa jones old farm and, oh, and wow. turned turned the uh, tractor sh- shed into a studio. So now there's one really? there. Yeah, it's great. Where's that? What part of town is that? That's in, in Springfield. That's up north, close to Kentucky oh. Kentucky line. It's really close to where. Uh, it's really close to where String Beans place was. Okay, well, that tragedy. Wow, Gra- Grandpa Jones and String Bean lived close by. They did actually. Grandpa wow. found them. He found them. He was going to go wow. with with them with with him that morning, and he found their bodies. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, tra- tragedy. Uh, but um, but Mark's got 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 the place over there now, and uh, he's working on it. And uh, but uh, RCAB, we we kind of it had a brand new uh, small Neve console mm-hmm. that was great because we didn't need buku channels you know we're, right. we're recording to pro tools and yeah. and uh and but we all kind of got i walked around in the room and sean did too and we just kind of found out places where we could put each other that were socially distanced yeah from each other and we wore masks all the time until you got to your station where you to your microphone you while you're by yourself there take your mask off but as soon as you oh so you guys were you guys were positioning yourselves far enough away to be like yeah. COVID safe. Wow. Yeah. That's we, kind of weird. We were going, we had to go by COVID rules and yeah. we, we just, we, we did it because we just didn't want it. Nobody wanted to be sick. And and yeah. this was during the really, this was before Delta, you know, when the big one came through and, yeah. and uh, we all escaped and we all, but you know, we were safe. We were in there together and no one had it. We, we tested once in a while, but everything was fine. So you were probably on headphones then to be able to hear stuff we are, properly. Yeah. We were yeah. on headphones because we did have baffles up so to pre- prevent some bleed. The, yeah. do- the dobro was the, the uh, and the vocal and the guitar were going down at the same time. So there was no repairing that. Right. But we just did takes. We did we yeah. like three or four takes of each song. And I did some inter- full band playing live, full band all the way, yeah. and no drum. Right. Uh, he didn't want, he, he, you know, when this first we first were talking about this, he said, he said, I'd like to do it without drums. He said, I'd like to do it kind of raw. And I said, that's you know, that's fine. We have a great drummer in our band, but you know, he'll he'll sit out, and we're we're all we all come from a bluegrass background where we if we hear a place for rhythm. One of us will do it. We'll do it. Yeah. It's needed somewhere. It's going to happen. Yeah. So it and it did. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> Lily Hyatt came in one day and she said, "Who's playing drums?" And I said, "There's no drums." She said, "There's drums." And I said, "No, there are no drums." You know, between the bass, the the bass and me chopping or or yeah or it's all covered. Also, the fiddle chopping and the, or the fiddle and Christian played so much great stuff on that record he's killer on that record man he's great there's some little hidden stuff there's stuff floating around that that i didn't even know he did it until i was mixing until you know until i was really able to zero in on everybody 
Yeah. That little that little that little new uh that little new console did a great job. Were there any issues that you came across when you were in the mixing process like as far as how the room affected the ensemble? Like was there any weirdness that Yeah, definitely that room has a sound and you cannot take it off. And right. So so you so you you use it. You use it. Yeah. You know, you It sounds amazing. Like it sounds like a certain space, you know. I don't know the room because I've only been through it like on a tour or whatever, but <laughs> I can imagine that it, you know, it that it record is a pretty good to be in there at night, you know? Yeah. Cuz there's no one really? out and you're in the studio that you know that, you know, everybody's dead. But, but <laughs> they're still there. They're, yeah. they're going, uh, you shouldn't play that note right there. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was kind of creepy to be in there late at night. But we we kind of knock off when it got dark, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we were all sort of down in the in the area in the part of the room in I said guess in the bottom of the room, sort of closer to the closer to the uh, control room. Mm-hmm. And John was sitting where we could all see John because we're all doing from John, and then. Yep. Next to him, elect, uh, Christian was over here. Fiddle was uh, uh, Christian was over here. Electric guitar was here, and I was sort of between electric and the bass. Yeah, but I could have done it without phones. I could have, mm-hmm. but it was just better hearing the whole thing, hearing the sounds. Yeah, and, yeah. But the room has a sound of its of its own. Like the yeah, studios around town that you could that I can hear on a record. I can tell where. That part of it was cut anyway. Right. You know, a drum. That's cool. And you want a certain drum sound, you go to, you go over to the, uh, to, uh, uh, there's a place over on Iris over in Berry Hill. There's a place that if drums are cut in there, they have this sound. Mm. And, and RCA has a sound. It's yeah. aisle floor. You can't get away from it. Right. You put as right. many carpets down as you want to, but <laughs> it's still there. It's, yeah. So yeah. we just did, we didn't even try. To defeat the room. Was John just pulling out new songs, or was it like had you guys rehearsed and arranged the music before you went in? Well, John, John, uh, as it turned out, had just moved uh, before we started this record. He had just moved into my neighborhood, and okay, and it's sort of a musical neighborhood. It's in Westmead, and John yep. lives less than a mile from me. So okay. I would go over to John's, and we'd go through songs, and he sent me a bunch of songs, and. And when he sent me, you know, mid uh, uh, burning, uh, the, the burning sun, that that hit me so hard. I said, "Is this real?" And he said, "Yeah, that's that. It <laughs> happened. That's my brother. That's what, that's what happened." Wow. And and it and all the songs are are sort of autobiographical. And, yeah. And uh, even even Mississippi phone booth, uh, but yet he'd explain them to me. And I'd I'd take them home and just kind of like lay all that out and try to try. To, I was even at that point thinking about what order this stuff goes in. You know, I just wow, cool. I just started that's looking, early for that. Looking at a bigger picture, so I could kind of so I could kind of move on and have that done. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So so I did that. I I, I knew that Light of the Burning Sun was not going to start the record or end it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what was going to kick right off the top, and how we end this thing? You know, how what's this journey? You know, what's this wave that records? If you still listen to a record from from one from the beginning, I do. 
Um, most people don't, you know, most, I know. most people yeah. pick a picket, you know, they buy, they, they don't buy all record day, but I do. I'm, I'm buying them and listen to them because I want to see what else is there. Not just the hit. I want to, I'm with you, man. I want to see what, what made the hit so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we would study those things and I'd say three or four trips over to his house and, and studying what he gave me and, and trying to figure out how I, my band could do this. I knew that my band could do this and make, could make the sound. We'd have a uniform sound. We're planning a tour. No brainer. Let's take, let's go this way. Let's go this route. I, I have, I've got all the faith in the world and the guys that are playing with me that they can make. Yep. Thing. Totally. And, uh, and it turned out great, and it's done all this. It's got a, it's up for a Grammy. It's it, the we did a video, a documentary thing, and that's our that that's that won a, a film festival the other day. So we got all. Oh really? Oh wow! I haven't I haven't heard about that. Cool. Yeah, we got we got a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, right on. And are, are you're doing some more touring with with him, or are are you kind of done with that for now? Well, that's a, that's sort of sort of out there. Still, out yeah, there's a possibility, and. Uh, so we did it. We we started in August, and Daniel, bass player, got COVID the first day of rehearsals. So yep. we did the first three. So we did the first three gigs with no bass. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh man! That was weird. We're yeah, so glad to get him back. And yeah, he's pretty good. That guy, eh? Yeah, love him. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, so that was the way it started. But then we. We came home. We finally finished that tour the day before Thanksgiving. So I was home Thanksgiving, and then I jumped on the Bayless uh, Bluegrass Heart. Right, the Bluegrass Heart. The, the stuff, day yeah. after Thanksgiving. When, <laughs> and uh, oh my god, yeah, it's a bit of a shift. It was a big shift. It was a big shift, <laughs> and I and I finished uh, finished up with Bayla like at Carnegie Hall on the 9th or tenth of January, and then I went to Scotland for transatlantic sessions. And I've been, Man. this is like my third day home. Amazing. So, you know, you're not slowing down anytime soon. Reentry. <laughs> no, uh, uh-uh. no, it's, there's plenty to do. There's plenty to, yeah. I had to cancel a couple of things. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do the little feet show. And there was a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a series called George and Tammy. That's going to be out later yeah i know i know all about that yeah that's gonna be great i went in and did uh, all of the old bashful brothers all oswald's oh that's cool and i was gonna go down and they're filming now in wilmington but i just but i couldn't i couldn't do it and i'm too couldn't do it i'm too tired to go down there and do that but somebody else somebody's faking my dobro parts today so yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's good yeah i'm I'm buddies with jay bellero so he told me about those sessions happening yeah uh, you know for the for the soundtrack for it anyway yeah we're we're back with yeah t-bone's back and yeah (laughs) so we've been working on that and that's going to be good michael shannon and all it's going to be they're great actors in it it ought to be yeah i can't wait to see it it's um what's her head playing uh tammy uh god what's her name yeah Um, i can't remember who's playing it but it's somebody good somebody really good yeah i remember well jerry thanks man i could talk to you all day but i'll 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 let you run here and uh thank you so much for talking to me and sure man setting this up man i really appreciate it hope to see you one of these days around town and, yeah um I, it's just a real treat to talk to you i'm such a fan i'm gonna be around oh thanks i'm i'm gonna be around a while i'm gonna i've got some stuff to do allison's 
Allison's making noise again. So, uh, uh, ah. so we're, we're going to be working sort of experimenting around a little bit with the, with ACUS, but see what union station <laughs> 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> I said, hey, this could be a reunion tour at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or do a, do a farewell tour. Don't we make more money that way? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> one time, one time, Tim O'Brien's mother, he, he said something about Bob Dylan playing in town. She said, didn't they break up? <laughs> he said, yeah, they, they're getting back together. <laughs> Reunion tours pay more. <laughs> yeah, man. I think I think Kiss is doing their 12th uh, final show this year. That's so, poor you know. guys, man. We, we, <laughs> Acus, uh, we opened up for Kiss in Oslo one time. What? We opened up this and we took a picture with them. And uh, during the picture, one of, one of, uh, 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 what's his names? The bass players. What's one of the Gene big, Simmons, one of these big forms on his shoulder. Yeah. Hit Barry right in the corner of the eye. <laughs> and, and we were threatening to sue to sue kiss for a while. We could, as we watched his eye change different colors, you know, every day. <laughs> we were on a tour in Europe and it was one of the best tours I've ever been on. But yeah, we ended up somehow opening up in Oslo for, for Kiss. <laughs> what band that you were in opened for Kiss? Agus. Holy shit. Yeah. That's funny, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I would love to see that. Oh, well. You didn't sit in, I guess. crazy, man. There's all these people standing in the rain, <laughs> in the mud with their Kiss, yeah. Kiss makeup on singing every word to every Alison Krauss song we did. It was wow. nuts. So wow. It was a, it's a good memory. Life is full of crazy stuff, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you got a book. few stories, man. I, I will yeah. write a book someday. Good to see you. Thanks, Jerry. Take it easy. You too. All right, that was my conversation with Jerry Douglas. Thus endeth season six of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. I really appreciate you all. And we'll see you in a couple months for another chilling rendition of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.